Speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Superman. Yes, Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman. Who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 158 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this is my penultimate episode covering the Ruby Spears Superman cartoon, which aired on CBS in 1988. There were 13 total episodes produced. Like I said, this is 11 and 12. The Superman story Wild Shark will start things off, and that will be coupled with the Superman family album story To Play or Not to Play. And then episode 12 is Night of the Living Shadows and the Superman family album story Graduation. You heard me mention that only 13 episodes of Ruby Spears were produced, which means the Final episode covering Ruby Spears will only have the one episode, but fear you not. I have uh, something special planned for the final episode of Ruby Spears Superman that I don't necessarily want to reveal right now. So before I get into this week's episodes, feedback to address as always, this is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode 147, and Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Well, I'm glad you got to end this season of Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians with an episode you remember from your childhood. That makes it a bit more personal for you, imagine. Escape from Space City was a decent story. Kind of average, I think. I don't really have much to comment on other than the title itself. Since it was called Star City throughout the episode, I wonder who decided to title it Escape from Space City. Maybe it's like newspapers where I understand the writer of an article isn't necessarily the person who writes the headline. It just struck me as a little odd. I also wondered why it was called a city, since there were only two people living there, and it didn't seem as if Moko really wanted any other inhabitants to join them, no matter how big it may have been. It doesn't really seem like a city with only two residents, more like a giant space estate. The death of Superman was certainly a fitting ending for his incarnation of the series, and probably for the series overall. I'm of mixed minds about the idea of Superman's death. I can certainly see that if Superman must die, some might prefer that he die fighting a powerful villain, rather than in an avalanche of kryptonite that seems accidental rather than random. I think for me, though, if he had to die, I wouldn't want it to be at the hands of a villain, whether Darkseid, Luthor, Brainiac, and Mr. Mixias Pitalik, or any other, because that might well mean the villain wins, and that would not be fitting. I wouldn't want Superman and the villain to kill each other, because that, too, brings Superman down to the level of the villain. For me, if Superman must die, I think I'd want it to be a noble death, like that of Pharaoh Lad in the Legion of Superheroes, who died in a suicide mission to destroy the Sun Eater. That was poised to eat Earth's sun. He died, knowing full well as he set out that he was almost certain to die, and that is a worthy death for a hero. Just my opinion. Your mileage may vary. I know you're a completist, so you're compelled to cover Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, but I'm thinking you won't be wholeheartedly delighted to do so. God bless you. I hope you and your girls have a fun Halloween. 
<laughs> which goes to show how long ago this letter was written. Live long and prosper, Dave. So, as always, uh, thank you, Dave, for writing in. And yes, it it was exciting for me, too, to end my Super Friends coverage with the Death of Superman episode, being that that really was the one episode that I really remembered. I talked about that at length uh, when I covered that episode. I remembered the interrogation of Firestorm, Superman dying in the Kryptonite Avalanche, and uh, the uh, participation from Darkseid at the uh, at the end. And as far as uh, Space City, I even recall when I recorded that episode, I kind of, I don't want to say I gave Space City the short shrift because, you know, it really didn't deserve much more than I gave it. But it was the kind of thing where I was definitely looking forward to getting further into the Death of Superman story than uh, the Space City one. And uh, as far as the Escape from Space City title thing, you are correct with newspapers in a way where you wrote, you said you understand that the writer of the article isn't necessarily the person who writes the headline. I would correct that and say that the writer of the article is not in any way, shape, form, or fashion the person who writes the headline. That is usually written by the editor. Unless, of course, you are like me and you are the writer and the editor in which you are headlining your own story a lot of the times. But I guess there are, I don't know, it really is a disconnect. I can only imagine that maybe the title card was made earlier than maybe the voice acting was changed later on. Maybe they changed it from Space City to Star City at some point and it's probably easier, easy enough to change that dialogue. The person who created the title card maybe screwed up and wrote Space City and it just kind of stayed because it wasn't worth it to waste the time to fix it. I don't know. It could be any one of those things, but there is a bit of a disconnect between the title of the episode and the way it's referred to in the story. And as far as why it was called a city, as I recall from watching the episode, I don't think it was ready yet. I think there was still work being done on it. And it was really only Moko who didn't want anybody to join them on the space station. I believe well, that was either what was it, his daughter or granddaughter. It's been so long ago that her name was even escaping me. But I seem to recall she was more in favor of the idea of other people joining them on the station. But it was really Moko who was dead set against it. And and as far as the death of Superman goes, you know, obviously nobody wants to see Superman die. And this episode was created well before, almost a decade before the death of Superman in the comics. But yeah, I want to see more of a heroic death for Superman rather than having Kryptonite Mountain fall on me. It's a matter of opinion. And as Dave said, your mileage may vary. And... I'm kind of interested to looking forward to reading Dave's letter on episode 148 in which we talked about Superman 4 because none of us really had any objection to covering Superman 4. I mean, obviously everybody who was there agreed to be there and we enjoyed ourselves, you know, as we always do a talk between friends. But, you know, I've covered far worse on this podcast than uh, Superman 4. I mean, you know, it's not the worst thing I've ever covered on this show. And with that being said, quick break, I'll play a podcast promo, and then I'll come back with Wild Shark and To Play or Not to Play. Hang around, folks. It began with the return of an ancient evil. Ah! After 10,000 years, I'm free! It's time to conquer Earth! Alpha, leaders escape. Recruiter team of teenagers with attitude. This is the story of five teenagers. Not teenagers! Yes, teenagers specifically chosen to keep our planet safe as the Power Rangers! 
Ranger Chronicles, every Tuesday as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. All right, welcome back, folks. All the episodes of this segment had original broadcast date of November 26, 1988, and we're going to start with the Superman episode, Wild Shark. This is written by Marv Wolfman and Cherry Wilkerson, and our synopsis is brought to you by the Super Friends Wiki. In the Bermuda Triangle, Superman must do battle with a villain known as Wild Shark, who has been hijacking merchant vessels by creating an artificial fog. His recent hijacking was a cruise ship called the Narnia, where two people on board were Perry White and his wife, who were on vacation. One crewman avoided abduction by going into a lifeboat, to which he radios for help. His distress call is heard by Lois Lane. And it can pick up signals from halfway around the world. Yeah, but can it pick up anything from across the street? Working hard? Playing hard is more like it. Jimmy's showing me his new high-powered CB radio. Mayday! Mayday! This is Crewman Stevens from the vessel Narnia. The Narnia's disappeared! Disappeared? That's the ship Perry and his wife are on. We lost him. That's not all we've lost. Clark's gone. Jimmy, you charter a jet to Bermuda. We'll beat that Clark Kent to a new story yet. Clark insists he is not trying to beat Lois to a story, Rather, he is concerned for the safety of Mr. and Mrs. White, as well as the other passengers. Superman saves Bermuda. And Wild Shark's pirating days are over, thanks to Superman. And where were you during all this, Clark? Perry says you weren't with the rest of the prisoners. Oh, uh, Superman found and uh, rescued me first. Where's that cab I called? Fast? You want fast? That's my specialty. Come on, my friends. Off we go. Yahoo! Oh, no. Uh, you two go ahead. I'll take you on my moped, Lois. Uh, uh, we'll walk all the way back to Metropolis if we have to. Okay, that is well, a pretty good synopsis of the first five minutes. It really doesn't cover anything that happens after they actually go to Bermuda. Well, in the absence of the rest of that synopsis, I will uh, give you the rest of the story in my uh, notes section. Now, basically, the way it ends is, uh, well, Superman saves the day at the end. Let's just leave it at that and move on to our notes. I mean, this was an okay episode. Uh, very basic. A big, uh, obviously, our Captain Wild Shark had the... Uh, shark motif going on and the, the bermuda triangle is a tried and true and tired trope if you ask me but anyway let's go into this perry and uh his wife are on a cruise uh his wife's name is never mentioned however i tend to call her alice throughout my notes because i'm just so used to perry white's wife being alice you know i'm used to that from the almost two decades of post-crisis comics that i've read not to mention Four seasons of Lois and Clark, the advent, the new adventures of Superman, which I'm going to cover in about a year or so. She was, his wife was Alice through all that, who actually, ironically, in that show only made one appearance, and that's late in season four, one of the final episodes of the series. Maybe even been the final episode, I don't remember exactly, but she was mentioned uh, well throughout, and most of her and Perry's story happened off screen, but that's, you know, something to get into when the time comes. Now, either way, Perry and Alice are on a cruise for their wedding anniversary, and apparently this cruise goes through the Bermuda Triangle. Is uh, that a thing? Do cruise ships tend to go through the Bermuda Triangle regularly? I don't know a ton about the Bermuda Triangle, but, you know, there is the legend that that is where ships tend to disappear. That is where the 
Flying Dutchman is alleged to have disappeared, if I remember that legend correctly. So, of course, they run into a mysterious fog. So, we have this guy here, and uh, he is, uh, this guy has uh, been thrown overboard. At first, you know, I don't know if he's the captain or what, but he is overboard, and when the fog disappears, the ship is gone, and he's kind of being uh, circled by sharks. Kind of a Jaws gone wrong situation for this uh, ship crewman here. And then the scene shifts back to Metropolis, where we have Lois and Jimmy. She, They are playing with a CB radio. And, of course, they pick up the Mayday from the crewman who washed overboard from the cruise ship. Yeah, it's not even a shortwave radio. Jimmy explicitly states, and I know that because I went back to, to listen to them talk about this, that this is a CB radio. A CB radio is what truckers use on the highway. And, you know, I could be totally wrong about this. I don't, I am not a radio uh, expert, but... I don't know that a CB radio would be able to pick that up all the way out in the ocean, especially near Bermuda. You know, if you're Metropolis is somewhere in the mid-Atlantic region to the northeast. It seems a little far away to me to pick up a distress call. But that is what is going to move our plot forward. The CB radio that Jimmy is uh, playing with, it may as well be a PD radio for a plot device. So meanwhile, back on the water, it's kind of hysterical watching this crewman trying to fight off a bunch of sharks with an oar. You can just know from watching it that's a losing battle. So uh, Clark uh, overheard what was going on, and Superman rescues the crewman. And then he sees the fog, and he sees something under the fog, and it looks like a shark. You know, it's big underneath the fog, but it is shark-shaped. You kind of see what appears to be fins. If this is the shark, it is huge. But so there are some weird doings here and going on here as Superman gets sucked into a whirlpool and then he finds himself ejected from the water by some kind of orange ball. I'm not necessarily sure what's going on here, but I have no complaint about the animation. It looks very good here. And, you know, things get even more interesting on the bottom of the ocean as we have this shark-shaped base sitting on the ocean floor. And it's commanded by Commander Wildshark. Literally, his name is Commander Wildshark. Could he at least made himself a captain? It's bad enough my brain wanted to keep calling him Captain Wildshark. I mean, why just Commander? It doesn't sound any better than Captain. And no matter what your rank is, if you're the head officer on the ship, you are the captain. Even if it's only a field commission. But anyway, no sense trying to interject some logic into this. Somebody decided he would be Commander Wildshark. Therefore, he is Commander Wildshark and not a captain. So the cruise ship is named the Narnia, definitely a nod to the uh, C.S. Lewis novels, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, just to name, to name a few. The mystical land was Narnia. So somebody uh, who wrote this episode seemed to uh, like those books. I never read the books, but I've seen some of the movies. Some are better than others. Now, I love how uh, Perry is mouthing off to uh, Commander Wildshark, and I wonder what he plans to do uh, with all these passengers. He's telling them to enjoy their stay. Yeah, as if they're at some kind of beach resort. So now we, the scene shifts to Clark in his casual Bermuda outfit, and uh, we meet Ricardo Shorts with a gap tooth to match, and we have to wade through about 30 seconds of bad Bermuda Shorts jokes before we get to the point of this scene, which is to find out that everyone in the bar seems to be in league with Commander Wildshark. I wrote Captain here in my notes. Guy really needs to give himself a promotion. So now Lois and Jimmy arrive on the scene, and uh, this is where the scene gets ridiculous. Clark notices Jimmy, Lois and Jimmy are down in Bermuda as well. He gives chase on a moped. Lois tells the driver to stop, 
which causes Clark on his moped to rear end the cab, and Clark is thrown from the moped over the car and onto the road in front of it. And is no one shocked to see Clark alive here? I should have broken his neck. I mean, I know it's a cartoon, and launching him into the air is supposed to be funny because we know he's Superman and wouldn't be harmed, but you would think Lois and Jimmy would be a little more worried uh, after he takes a spell like that. The most concern you get for Clark's welfare here is Lois running out saying, Clark, are you all right? And as Clark is about to uh, spill his guts, we have three guys that are shooting at them, and now all three of them are leaving on Clark's moped. And with all that weight, it's amazing this thing is going anywhere. And it looks like these uh, Bermudans are firing ray guns because cartoon standards of the time won't let them have real ones. And you never know, maybe uh, ray guns... No, you know what? I'm not even going to go there. It's because of the standards. So we've had a little chasing going on. I mean, to, as compared to the chasing we had before, which involved Clark flying off a moped, we have more crashes as these guys are collide with a chicken truck. And now we've got all kinds of hysteria as Clark drives the moped into this hotel, drives around the lobby, and then it's onto the pool deck. You know, and once you see the pool, you know the moped is going to land in the pool and... It doesn't disappoint. Well, maybe it does. It depends on how you look at it. But as soon as I saw the pool and the moped, it's a foregone conclusion that the moped is going in. This whole nonsense with uh, Clark riding around the moped in the hotel kind of reminds me of that sequence in True Lies where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger rides a horse through a hotel. Remember that? Kind of a ridiculous movie, but it entertains nonetheless. Probably doesn't hold up now as well as uh, some of his other work, but I enjoy it. Oh, but before I started complaining about the the moped going in the water, in the pool, Clark is abducted, kind of almost like somebody in a helicopter went fishing, and they just kind of reeled him into the helicopter. I didn't count on that when I saw when I was watching this scene. I counted on the moped going into the pool, but not Clark being caught like a flounder. So Jimmy's outfit is really something here: uh, a green shirt, brown shorts, and a knee-high white socks. Definitely not high fashion for the late eighties. So Lois and Jimmy are going to go check out the uh, Bermuda Shorts nightclub, which really doesn't seem like much of a nightclub. It seems more like a straw hut than anything else, or like kind of like a beachfront bar. I'm hesitant to call anything here a nightclub. So anyway, under the water, Clark is brought to Commander Wild Shark, and he tells Wild Shark that his shark motif is stupid. So that'll get you sent to the dungeon. If you are going to be underwater with a guy calling himself Wild Shark, telling him you think sharks are stupid is probably not the best way to go about continuing your life just saying so lois has an idea here over at the uh, bermuda shorts uh nightclub slash straw hut slash target for the big bad wolf and lois is gonna go undercover as a dancer and she uh, tries to uh regale ricardo shorts with a broadway resume and instead she just kind of winds up in a pink grass skirt so lois here on a kid's cartoon is kind of throwing her feminine wiles around here to get information from, from these morons at the club. And she tricks them into giving her the info that she wants. Hey, Greg Dancing. Wow, you're really good. Oh, it's nothing really. Um, what sort of work do you do? Well, I can't tell anyone. It's a secret. Really? Oh, it sounds important. I bet you're the boss. Wild Shark's a boss, but uh, I do all the work. Isn't that the way it always is? Don't tell anyone, but Wild Shark has hired me to dance for you guys. Really? 
Not Sea Base One. I'm supposed to go there tonight to the, to the, um... The oil platform. The one in the ocean? Yeah, two miles south of the point. That's the one. Hey, Bumburger, let's get the show on the road. So I'll, uh, I'll see you again tonight. You bet. It's a pretty good writing, especially for a kid's cartoon, but you can always tell. I mean, obviously, obviously it's got cartoon trappings with Commando Wildshark, but you can definitely feel the hand of Marv Wolfman in here. I mean, he is generally, he is the story editor for the show, but you feel a little more Marv here knowing that he's one of the writers of the story. Either that or Cherry Wilkerson, who wrote most, if not all, of the Superman family seg- album segments. Maybe her episode was so bad that Marv had to step in so much that he got a writing credit. I don't actually know. I mean, this isn't a great concept to begin with, but moving on. I mean, Lois doing this kind of thing is something we're going to see a lot of in uh, Lois and Clark uh, down the line. So Lois gets the information she wants and abruptly quits. And now, under the sea, a Superman emerges from Clark's cell, and it's unclear if anyone's going to miss Clark, but but Superman is going to try to rescue this ship that is carrying gold, because that's what he overheard Wildshark saying that's what he was after next. So obviously, like many comics villains, Commando Wildshark will overdo it with the shark motif, and now we see that the orange orb that gave Superman such trouble in the opening minute is from Commander Shark's vessel here. I really like this animation of Superman saving the uh, sinking ship by dragging it to shore through the air. I mean, granted, the f- physics are ridiculous, but you accept this in a car- in a cartoon where you ne- wouldn't necessarily accept it in live action. And I love the added detail of the people on the ground waving at Superman as he flies off after he leaves the boat on the shore. So we're going to get more good Lois stuff here, as I love seeing Lois taking matters into her own hands. I mean, she puts on a scuba suit and dives down to Wild Shark's base. And I like the scale in this sea base, showing how small Lois is compared to this expansive base. The, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it a camera or what, but it zooms out and you can just, Lois gets smaller as just this huge base with all of its ships just seems to loom larger and larger and you get a good sense of how big it is. And this is a very post-crisis Lois Lane. She's not content to wait for Superman to do his thing, but she only needs rescuing because eventually she kind of just gets in over her head in her attempt to get the story. Wild Shark is not going after her because she's a friend of Superman. He catches her because she's doing her job. She's not just being a damsel in distress. She's trying to affect change on the story. She she has goals that she's trying to accomplish, and you know it's just too much because Superman is the hero, not Lois Lane. She wasn't just kidnapped like in the George Reeves show. So Superman finds the base and Wild Shark's minions attack him. And there's a nice shot here that I like of Superman uh, throwing a missile back at the submarine. Now here's something that annoys me. Eventually, Superman is overwhelmed by a bunch of nets. Yes, nets. Things that he should just be able to shred immediately with no trouble at all. Superman has difficulty fighting off Wild Shark's minions with who f- overwhelm him with nets. But your pa- our patience is eventually rewarded when he turns the tables on Wild Shark's men and he kind of hangs them from something high. I don't remember what it was off the top of my head. But I, I did get a chuckle when he told him not to go anywhere. Now, he's just hanging there, and these guys are just hanging there. They're not going anywhere. And uh, Superman rescues Perry and Alice, and he kind of puts them to work freeing the rest of the prisoners as he goes after Wild Shark. So apparently Wild Shark's failsafe is to destroy Bermuda with a water spout. 
And here we have Superman trying to stop the watery cyclone. And first he tries to eat vision. That doesn't work. Then he throws it, which does work. I would think, you know, if that were done nowadays in a cartoon or on TV or something or in the movies, it would probably take more effort. But you know what? This is only an 18 minute episode. Time is precious. And the episode pretty much ends quickly as Superman kind of just scoops up Wild Shark and flies him away to the waiting authorities. And in our ending, as soon as Superman is mentioned, Clark whistles like he's not paying attention. Not much of an ending. Lois demands to know where Clark was, and he says Superman rescued him first. Yeah, because Clark would be a priority, I guess. If So we have to suffer more with Lois's cabbie from earlier in the episode, and uh, who I didn't really mention, but he was pretty much crazy. But rather than get in the car with the crazy cabbie or Clark's moped of death, she'd rather walk to Metropolis from an island. There might be some swimming involved, but... Apparently, she's not overly concerned about it. So, there was a lot to like in this episode. I mean, it wasn't a great episode, but it was solid. Like I said before, the uh, Bermuda Triangle has been a trope for the longest time, and in this universe, the mysterious disappearance of ships are because of the actions of Commando Wildshark. Now, I like Clark going out on his adventures, and Lois kind of doing what Lois does. She uh, tries to ferret out the story and catch the bad guy herself, and nearly succeeds. And, you know, Lois going undercover is a welcome thing. It's, you don't see a lot of Lois Lane Reporter in a kid's cartoon, but it is a welcome sight here. Overall, it's a better episode than I would have, than I would have expected from something called Wild Shark. Let's just say that. So, with that done, let's move on to our next story. The Superman Family Album story, To Play or Not to Play. And our synopsis is as follows. Clark decides to follow his friend to try out for the football team. When Clark makes a starting position, Pa asks him to reconsider joining the team. I'm the best player he's ever had. Well, I'm sure you are, son, but do you really think that's fair to the other boys? Fair? I didn't cheat. I know, but you're playing football with ordinary boys is like an adult playing with little kids. I mean, is that fair? Well, no, but I can't just quit. Kind of puts you between a rock and a hard place, doesn't it, son? Clark reluctantly agrees with his dad and tries to get himself disqualified from the team. But is there a way for Clark to contribute to the team? where he is indeed evenly matched with all of the others. Okay, this is definitely based on a post-crisis Superman, as that was really the first time in any kind of Superman continuity that I know of that Clark was ever part of the football team. He was the water boy, the team manager, but never actually a player on the team itself. Now, Clark does some impressive feats by human standards. He throws a 100-yard touchdown pass. I mean, he can do it all. He throws and kicks farther. He makes no bones about hiding his superpowers. Clark is the best player that the coach has ever seen, and everyone cheers. And uh, the backup quarterback is even happy to see Clark, even though it means uh, he's going to spend most of his time on the bench. So now, you know, that evening, Ma and Pa ask Clark if he thinks going out for the team is unfair. Did they not know that he was going out for the team? I played high school football. In order to play any scholastic sport in high school, you need a permission slip signed by your parents. And, and I know that's not interesting as far as television is concerned, but you would think that's something they would have discussed at that time and not after the first day of practice. And secondly, I don't care how good you are, no football coach is naming his starting quarterback on the first day of practice. So now Clark's got his glasses on, but still a spit curl, which apparently this is not the origin of the glasses because they'll disappear shortly. 
Clark thought the glasses would get him off the team because he is refusing to quit. He can't just quit. He needs to have a reason. He basically has to give the reason, the coach a reason to cut him. So basically, what he does is everything that he did well the previous day, he does horribly now. He's throwing the ball and missing his receivers. He's screwing things up. And so basically, after one bad day at practice, Clark is off the team. Now, first, you don't name your starting quarterback on the first day of practice, and you don't cut anybody from the team on the second. There are a good two weeks of football practice before you have to make any kind of decision like that. And to be honest, there are no limits to high school football rosters. When I played football, we didn't cut anybody because a lot of times the more the merrier. NFL maximum is 53. None of my high school teams ever came close to that. The most 30. So basically Clark ends up as a team manager is going to help the coach with play calling because apparently he can't do it himself. He needs a high school coach to do it for him. So, okay, not a bad episode. It plays on, plays on the idea of why Clark shouldn't play any sports. But And this is the same thing I'd wonder about the John Byrne version as well. With all of his powers, it just boggles the mind as to why the Kents would allow him to play. So that's basically all I've got on those two stories. But right now, I'm going to take another break. I'm going to play another podcast promo. Then when I come back, I'll have the Superman episode, Night of the Living Shadows, and the Superman family album story, Graduation. Hang around, folks. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as Martian Manhunter, Batman, Dr. Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mr. Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? All right, welcome back, folks. The episodes of this segment all had an original broadcast date of December 3rd, 1988, and we're going to start with the Superman story. Night of the Living Shadows. This is written by Buzz Dixon, and our synopses are brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. A shadow in the figure of a man robs a bank in broad daylight, gassing everyone on his way out. Superman is powerless to stop him as he can't grab the shadow. The shadow turns out to be one of Luther's henchmen. Your front page news, McFarlane. I'm impressed. Even I wasn't sure my shadow suit was so uh, formidable. Impressed enough to give me a raise so I can get out of this dump? Please, I have sensitive ears. Now, while you recruit a gang for the crime of the century, I want to test out the shadow suit for myself. (laughs) It's been years since I robbed my first candy store or held hostage my first country. Perfect! A little electronic voice distortion to keep my identity a secret. Ah, yes. <laughs> this should be fun. Luther himself goes on a little joyride using the suit to rob a jewelry store. An alarm is raised, and Superman appears on the scene, only to have Luther slip away from him. It was wonderful, 
ridiculous. He looked like such a dope. Yeah, Luther, but you better get solid again. You stay a shadow for more than two hours. You stay like that forever. <gasps> what? You mindless little maggot! You dare risk my life without telling me I should... What, what am I talking about? You've just given me the perfect means to both pull off the greatest robbery of all time and rid myself of Superman forever! Two victories for the price of one! Recruiting villains to join his shadow gang, Luthor is unaware that Lois has infiltrated the gang. Foiling his plans to rob the Mint, Luthor gets away while Superman captures the rest of the gang. Back to normal, I see. And as lovely as ever. Thanks to you. But Superman, tell me, you wouldn't really have thrown them into the sun, would you? Of course not. But criminals always assume everyone's as crooked as they are. Inspector, you'll find the printing plates and paper inside. Unfortunately, there's nothing tying them into Luther. One of these days, we'll get enough evidence to toss him behind bars forever. Until then, at least we have you here to stop his plans. It's the least I can do, Inspector. Up, up, up away! Now, that is a better synopsis. Had I, you know, I guess cared enough to check the synopsis from the Super Friends Wiki for the Wild Shark episode, I'd have done something a little uh, more comprehensive, but... I think my notes segment was comprehensive enough. As far as this episode, uh, one of the uh, things that strikes uh, at me right away is that uh, while Clark and Jimmy are at the bank in line for whatever reason they're in line for, Jimmy wants to be a reporter, so the girls will flock to him. I wonder how that's working out for you, Jim. Not working out for me, I'll tell you that. Right then and there. At least now, in my uh, second phase of uh, being single, maybe Jimmy should try TV. So Clark freaks out when he sees a shadow walking uh, by itself. I, you know, even though this is something that Clark would do, I can't necessarily fault Clark for this. I would probably freak out as well. The bank employees were a little slow closing the vault that allowed the shadow creature to get in, which may or may not have been good for them. I'm not necessarily sure what their intention was, but I mean, they seem to ask each other if they thought they trapped it. So maybe they were trying to keep it in the vault. But once we figure out that their powers are can kind of flatten and to kind of slither through like little cracks and cracks and whatnot. You really can't trap them in very many places. Now, <laughs> this is kind of amusing as Clark and Jimmy run into the phone booth that are next to each other. Jimmy's calling the something into the planet and uh, Clark makes a quick change to Superman. <laughs> Jimmy's back with the Clark. So he was able to get away with it. And I'm pretty sure that's the first time we've seen Clark change the Superman in a phone booth in this show. If it is, I and I'm pretty sure it is, the idea of Superman changing in a phone booth is something that is not as common as people think. So when you see it, it stands out. I think I would have taken notice of it and remembered it if I had seen it before. And I'm not sure we're going to see it again. I mean, there's only an opportunity after this for one more episode. So I would be inclined to think not. If this is the first time we're seeing it in 12 episodes, what are the odds of seeing it again in episode 13? So the shadow creature gassed the bank and it got away while Superman inhaled and exhaled the gas. Basically, the gas was a distraction for Superman. He inhales it in the bank and then kind of releases it in the atmosphere. And uh, back at the planet, Jimmy is concerned about Perry's headline about Superman being helpless against the Shadow Gang. Makes Superman look bad, you know. It's a fair headline, and Superman would probably agree that he was a little helpless. So, obviously, uh, Perry wants to have know who the Shadow Thief is and is about to have a meltdown over the idea. You know, because that's what Perry White does. 
Perry White with, you know, especially from the 50s, uh, George Reeves Adventures of Superman that I've covered before, that's really, to me, where the kind of aggravated Perry White seems to come from. Really not something you see a ton of in the comics, although it's kind of difficult to translate that into the comics without somebody like uh, John Hamilton uh, acting it out for you. So now we go to a rundown section of Metropolis, where apparently this homeless uh, bucktooth guy was in the shadow suit. And here is Lex Luthor, who uh, designed the shadow suit. Our poor friend here is a McFarland. He tested the suit. And Lex is saying that he wants to test out the suit. And to be totally honest, I'm really not hankering to see Lex in a shadow suit. If Lex Luthor is going to wear a super suit of any kind, I would much rather be the, the green and purple power suit. I don't understand why Lex would want to rob a jewelry store, as this particular version of Luthor is uh, loaded, but he does. So Clark is talking to Inspector Henderson, and that's his first appearance in the show, and just uh, seeing Henderson and Clark gives me a nice uh, George Reeves and Robert Shane feeling. It's uh, short-lived, but it's really nice to see it. And uh, while that's happening, uh, the Shadow Thief is robbing the jewelry store. And this Superman is somewhat similar to the George Reeves Superman in my eyes, as uh, in his toughness, I mean, even Clark shows some backbone in this show. I mean, he didn't show much backbone when he was scared out of his mind by the uh, shadow creature on the ground, but if you remember back in the Mummy episode, I don't remember what that episode was called off the top of my head, but he went right after that Mummy with a sword, as Clark Kent. So this Clark Kent seemed to take a little bit from the post-crisis Superman, and which Marv Wolfman was involved in uh, the conception of that with John Byrne, and this little bit of George Reeves Superman in here too, which Wolfman, who was born in 1944 would have been, you know, prime age for the George Reeves Adventures of Superman. So I like the slithering effect of the shadow creature who sent the car barreling into a playground before Superman picked up the car and flew it away. It all seemed very casual, like there was no real danger there. I would have liked to have seen maybe a little more, you know, maybe a couple kids running or something, just to show that this car barreling down on them might be some kind of threat, and they're not just, you know, kind of waiting calmly for Superman to take care of it. So this is where Luther finds out there's a flaw in the suit. You can only stay in it for two hours at a time. Otherwise, you didn't get stuck that way. You know how, you know, when you were a kid, your grandmother said if you sm made too much of a funny face, it would get stuck, stuck that way? Well, if you stayed in the shadow suit for two hours or more, you'll get stuck as a shadow. So, Luthor was kind of upset about this at first, but then he thinks it's great. So, Lois and Jimmy are at a dive bar here, which is giving me a very uh, suicide slumish uh, Ace of Clubs type vibe. I don't remember when the Ace of Clubs made its first appearance in the comics. It might have been around this time. So they have a lead, and Jimmy goes back to find Clark. And apparently it's summerish in Metropolis, as the office has fans on. And that's a nice detail in an episode like this. I mean, they don't add anything to the story. They just populate the screen with these little fans that are on. And I like little touches like that. It makes it seem real in a way, like that this is a living and breathing place. The screen has more than just what it needs to tell its story. They see it plays just as well if there are no fans there. But, you know, the fans in the background just add a little bit extra. So Lois uh, found the shadow suit, and uh, she joined the gang of shadow thieves, and she has a little bit of an oh-crap moment, and she doesn't really know how to work the suit, but she was able to watch uh, one of her uh, one of the other guys do it pretty quickly. And their plan is to knock over the Metropolis Mint, where the money is printed. So the leader of the shadow gang, which is Luthor, is making threats, and Clark can't place the voice. If you listen closely, you know, you realize it's Lex's voice. I am the leader of the shadow gang that has made such a monkey out of Superman. That voice sounds so familiar, but I can't quite place it. And we'll make a fool of him again. 
The Metropolis Mint contains every security device known. Nobody can break in. <laughs> but we will. The Mint can't get over there fast. Unless Superman's got the guts to try and stop us. Uh, you see, Lois? Now, when she's on a story, nothing stops her. Now, I mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. It's got to be creepy to see those shadows moving on the ground on their own with no person to cast the shadow. So that's that. So Slow Luthor has designed some kryptonite ammunition into military tanks to take care of Superman, but it's clearly ineffective as, as Superman dodges kryptonite rather easily, taking out most of the tanks, at least until he gets to the last one. And now Superman does a really great job of standing there in front of the tank in a pose as the tank knocks him over and out of the fight for a moment. Sometimes Superman will give you a little too much uh, superhero posing. Well, that doesn't put Superman down very long as he ripped the cannon off of the tank and basically visited it upon the originator. He takes the uh, barrel of the gun and uh, throws it right back at the tank. So eventually, Lois is still hanging around with the gang when she hears about the suit's fatal flaw. You know, the two hours before you end up stuck that way. And uh, yeah, that's when she panics. And uh, So Superman arrives and then shows a great deal of uh, Kryptonian dumbassery as he catches the kryptonite and then keels over. Dumbass! Not the smartest thing Superman has ever done. Like I mentioned before, a little too much posturing, if you ask me. And then, as all criminals do, they're going to uh, blow the mint once they get what they want. At this point, they've discovered uh, that Lois has infiltrated their gang, and uh, Superman makes a gap in the uh, the closed uh, lock from the vault, and that allows Lois to uh, slither away with the kryptonite. And uh, so we're seeing that, yes, Lois does know how to operate the uh, shadow suit. So then, as she leaves with the kryptonite, for the second time in this series, Lois Lane save superman see it's not just about superman saving lois in this episode it is lois that saves superman again this show is very good to lois lane that doesn't change the fact that she's still panicking because she doesn't want to get stuck in the shadow wraith but apparently uh, turning the suit off isn't as easy as turning it on apparently you need a special access code to do that and interesting during the battle that the shadow thieves are intangible and then superman confronts the leader who he calls uh, luthor but obviously he denies being Lex Luthor. You know, it's not much of a denial as uh, Superman rounds up the rest of the gang. And uh, Superman was trying to get himself a shadow suit so he could uh, fight them on their terms. But he's too busy posturing and it's too late to get him a shadow suit. Now Superman had an idea and that uh, was Lex's cue to exit. And in order to get these guys to talk on how to shut off the shadow suit, Luthor gets away. While Superman actually lifts the warehouse and then flies it high over Metropolis. So in exchange for uh, freeing Lois, uh, Superman threatens to throw them into the sun. <laughs> and I love the hysteria among the criminals. Like, oh, he won't really do it, will he? No, no, no. Are you sure? No. Then, uh, the, you know, for as much of a good guy as Superman is, they are suddenly very worried about the idea of being thrown into the sun. So they relent. They give Superman the code to free Lois, take off their shadow suits, and they go to jail. So we got the shadow thieves, but Luthor got away. Now, that was a really fun episode. I like the dilemma of Lois being stuck in the suit. You know, it added a little bit more to than just the adventure. There was actually some stakes here. You know, obviously you're going to assume Lois is not going to be stuck in the shadow forever. But, you know, I liked the two-hour time limit. It gave Lois a deadline to get out of the shadow suit. And made Superman kind of have to boogie his ass a little bit. But, again, though, I still don't understand why Lex was knocking over a jewelry store. I mean, with his wealth, he should be well beyond things like that at this point. I guess maybe he did it for the thrill. I don't know. But that is all I got on that episode. So with that being said, let's, let's move along to the final phase here. The Superman family album story, Graduation by Sherry Wilkinson. 
And our synopsis is as follows. Clark's graduation robe is soiled in a run-in with Lana's pet dog, and later by some runaway cows. There's no time to get the rope dry, so he buys the last one in the store, which is way too big for him. Martha stitches it up for him, and they head off to, gra- to the graduation ceremony, only to realize rain clouds look like spoiling the outdoor event. Clark flies off to blow away the clouds, arriving just in time to receive his graduation certificate. Alright, so here's the next uh, milestone, high school graduation. And we start off at Lana's house, this must be Lana's mother. Clark wants to see his parents, but before he graduates, he wants them to see him looking all dapper in his uh, cap and gown. And that is when Lana's dog, Buster, jumps on Clark's robe and gets it dirty. Now, Buster, you know, is a commonish name for a dog, but maybe it's a nod to Superman 3, as that was Lana and her son Ricky's dog's name in that film. So, this is going to be one of those comedy of error stories where everything just kind of goes wrong because it's funny, I guess. Because Clark runs into cows on the way home and, uh, because they escaped through a broken fence while Clark fixed the fence in his graduation robe. Dumbass! That is one of the things that really annoyed me about this episode. You know, as a parent, these are things you think about. All of Clark's trouble in this episode could have been avoided if he simply didn't put the graduation robe on until he got to graduation. Dumbass! So, uh, first the dog got him, now the cows have got him, and Clark goes home to his mother and tells her, I don't want to go to graduation looking like a dirtbag. Well, maybe if you didn't wear your uh, cap and gown while you're out gallivanting, Clark, that wouldn't have happened. Dumbass! So Clark goes to get the new storm and the new gown, and the last one is huge on him. He's literally swimming in it. Looks like a fit job of the hut. But he takes that home. Ma Ken has altered the gown, and they're going to go to graduation. But oh no, it's going to rain, and it's outdoors. So appears Clark is going to have to blow those rain clouds away. Apparently, it's going to take all day. But he has to have his sunny graduation. A pity for all of the students who had to graduate in the rain that day, who didn't have young Superman in their high school class. They had to get wet. And I should be a little more sympathetic. My college graduation was outdoors and in the pouring rain. Granted, we were under tents, but being out there in that rain graduation really sucked. So after blowing the clouds away, Clark arrives at the ceremony just in time, scaring the hell out of Lana because he just appears there after not being there before. I wonder what she thinks of that. So... He gets his diploma. It's over. The problem with these is they're short and they're just played for last mostly. Clark does something stupid, wears the gown all day before graduation and pays the price. You know, I've been for the most part disappointed with the Superman album stories with the exception of a couple. The next time we're going to move back to uh, live action Superboy with the episodes The Alien Solution and Troubled Waters. In the meantime, you can leave me feedback. It's always welcome manascreen at gmail.com if you want to join the conversation over the facebook group just put manascreen podcast in your search feed and the show should come up you can also find the show on twitter at manascreencast until next time folks we're all on the same team good night the manascreen podcast is produced by mike Jumo. And all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyrighted by original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.